From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the worst thing that happened to Black history during Black History Month was not Ron DeSantis banning critical concepts and approaches in Florida. It was the College Board revising its new African-American Studies curriculum to meet all his demands everywhere in the country. But now, scholars in Black history, Black studies, and related fields are fighting back. Kimberly Crenshaw will explain. But first, the news about Israel and the Palestinians. Sari Makdisi will comment in a minute. We need to talk about Israel and the Palestinians. Israel's new far-right government, headed again by Benjamin Netanyahu, is working to undermine democracy for Israelis and advance Israel's annexation of Palestinian land. For analysis, we turn to Sari Makdisi. He's professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA and author of, among other books, Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial, published recently by the University of California Press. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, in the London Review of Books, also in The Nation. Sari Makdisi, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, first, let's talk about what's going on in Israel now. Uh, there's been a massive protest movement that has risen up against Netanyahu's government. It's brought over 100,000 people into the streets, fighting legislation that will fundamentally change the country's political institutions, and also opposing plans to build thousands of new settlement units in occupied territory and plans to approve the outright annexation of Palestinian land previously seized by illegal Jewish settlements. Then last week, in the midst of these unprecedented protests by Jews, Netanyahu launched an unusual daylight operation in Nablus to arrest Palestinians considered terror suspects. Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and wounded 102 others, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. This obviously was calculated to provoke a response, and there was a response. Six rockets were launched from Gaza into southern Israel, followed by Israeli airstrikes on Gaza last Thursday. And immediately the top headlines in the Israeli media shifted from the country's unprecedented internal political battle to the kind of fight it has covered many times, armed confrontation with external enemies. That's what happened last week. Now we have headlines about settler violence in Huwara, a Palestinian village on the West Bank on Sunday night. Tell us what happened. What happened was a very, very large mobilization of Jewish settlers from the region around Huwara. Huwara, Huwara is near Nablus, and they're both kind of surrounded by, Jew, by Jewish settlements. And what, and what happened was a, a huge uh, concentration of, of these settlers basically stormed the center of the town and set fire to cars and homes. And basically it was a kind of pogrom. It was something like out of the 19th century in Europe. From a Palestinian point of view, the problem with these kinds of things isn't just that you have these, these people setting fire to your homes and your cars and whatnot, but also that if you lift a finger in your own self-defense, the army, which is watching over the settlers, it's there to protect the settlers, it's not there to protect you, it's there to protect the settlers. So if you do anything to, to, you know, to protect yourself, you'll, you'll be dealing not just with the settlers, but with a very organized, a very modern army that's that's backing the settlers up. So it's like a it's no matter what you do, you're kind of 
you're kind of damned as a Palestinian. That's that's and it speaks to the larger kind of the larger complex, you know, that's at play right now. So that in your introduction, John, you were talking about a distinction kind of between between Israel and the occupied territories. From a Palestinian perspective, that distinction no longer really holds because Palestinians across both sides of the 1967 or pre, you know pre 1967 so-called Green Line, that for some people distinguishes what's called Israel from what's called the occupied territories, meaning the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. As far as Palestinians are concerned, they are dis, they are you know secondary or tertiary or or worse citizens or residents uh, across, on both sides of that both sides of that border. And the recent the recent uh, developments are kind of accentuating that. The New York Times described the attacks on Huwara as, quote, violence. I wonder what you think of using that term in this case. I mean, obviously it's violence, but what's interesting is that it also, in the context of the attacks that have been taking place in the past few days. So for instance, uh, as part of, after the, after the Israeli army raided into Nablus, you know, last week, uh, a Palestinian uh, shot and killed two Israeli settlers. And that attack was referred to by, obviously by the Israeli state, that goes without saying, but also by the U.S. ambassador in there and, and by you know, journalists in, in The Guardian and The New York Times and other places as terrorism. You know? So what's really striking is, well, why is one form of violence referred to as terrorism and the other form of violence referred to merely as sort of generic violence? But this is a really, really crucial question, because at some level, you could say both forms of violence amount to people taking the law into their own hands or taking justice into their own hands. Well, then why is one why is one differentiated from the other? The answer is, as in so many other things in the question of Palestine, the answer has to do with race. The members of one racial group are considered just sort of ontologically to be considered terrorists and the other members of the other racial group are you know, ontologically considered to be something else so that when they engage in violence, oh, it's just violence, you know, and, and we can all wring our hands and condemn violence. but. But, you know, in the way that, you know, most people think these days in the, in the U.S. and Europe, at least, terrorism has a kind of special, it's reserved for a special opprobrium. It's not just, it's not just violence, it's this, this particularly nasty kind of violence. You know? And of course, again, if you think about it, well, what's, what is the difference between, you know, killing people is killing people at the end of the day, you know, and so, you know, why, why is one form privileged and the other one is sort of denigrated, except, except unless we look for a kind of racial explanation, which in this case, it's obvious what the racial explanation is. Netanyahu took power this time with a formal policy declaration that, quote, the Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel, close quote. What do they mean by the land of Israel? And what do they mean by an exclusive right? Uh, that's a great question and something I wrote about in my piece in The Nation recently. What they mean by the land of Israel, it's, a, it's an old Zionist phrase that means basically what we would call all of historical Palestine, which is to say, if you want to call it the state of Israel within its pre-67 borders, which of course it's never, it's never declared borders, even that's kind of an ambiguous statement. Let's say pre-67 Israel, plus the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and so forth. That's, we call it Palestine, they call it the land of Israel. What they mean by that is, is that only people who are Jewish have an exclusive right they're the only ones who have access to any kind of rights in an exclusive sense across all of that territory. If you're talking about exclusive rights, by definition, it's a zero-sum game. If this party has exclusive rights, that party doesn't have any rights at all because it's like it's, it's not you know exclusive means as to the exclusion of everybody else. We have to remember that in this in this territory as a whole, that is from the Mediterranean Sea to the to the Jordan River, 
there are roughly equal populations of Jewish and non-Jewish people, that is Jewish and Palestinian people living there, more or less 50-50 in terms of population. And what that essentially formal declaration of apartheid amounts to is, a, is, is the reiteration. It's not new per se, it's that it's more explicit now than it has been in, in previous years to say, only Jews have rights here and Palestinians have no rights. I mean, that is as close as you can get to a formal declaration of apartheid as is possible to imagine. It's been done, and as I, I mean, there are other ways to think about that. There are precedents for it too, in a law passed in 2018 called the Jewish nation state law, which formalized some of the same principles. I mean, this is not like a brand new thing. Um, and it's been, it's been there all along in the sense that this has always been an apartheid state. This is becoming more and more explicitly and, and de jure rather than merely de facto a, a, an apartheid state. Liberal defenders of Israel argue that Israel was founded as a democratic and secular state, but the 1967 war and the occupation of Palestinian territories fundamentally changed Israel, turning it into an occupier with all the violence and injustice that occupation requires. This is a view that you're challenging. Yes, of course, because from the very beginning, from the moment of its foundation of, as a state, it is it has juridically, uh, institutionally, juridically, legally discriminated, differentiated between Jews and non-Jews in terms of citizens within the territory of the state itself. When the Israelis took over the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem after, in 1967, that became much more obvious, much more easy to see, so that somebody like President Carter could say in his famous book from 2006, there's an... He, he said, for example, Carter said specifically, there's a system of apartheid in the occupied territories, but not in pre-67 Israel, which is completely incorrect. Like, for example, the most fundamental level, the way in which the state understands and identifies its own citizens within its pre-67 delineations, a Jewish citizen is, dis is distinguished from a, from, a, from a Palestinian citizen, both citizens of the state, because only the Jewish citizen has access to what the state identifies as national rights. The Jew is identified as a national, right? And it's something that is very, very, it's very clear in how the language of the state, the infrastructure of the state, the state works. Only Jews have access to national rights in, inside the state. Palestinian citizens, they may be citizens, but because they're not nationals, they don't have access to those kinds of rights. And therefore they're discriminated against, like from the, literally from the get-go. From the, from the moment of their, of their arrival into the state's population registry, there's a distinction that takes place that gives some people access and, and withholds rights from other people. And that's, that's been the case since the, since the state's nationality law, which only applies to Jews, was passed in 1950, the law of return. It's not new, in other words. It is, it's a state that has always discriminated between Jews and non-Jews. There's nothing new there. What 1967 and the occupation made, made it much more, as I said, much more obvious, much more naked, so that liberals could, disavow what was happening in the occupied territories, in the post-67 occupied territories. But as you say, John, going back to what seemed to them to be the good Israel of pre-67, where everybody seemed to be equal, they were never equal. It was always, this was always a system based on, first of all, mass expulsions of a population, ethnic cleansing, home demolition, destruction, restriction of rights. And, and as I said, the juridical, legal, institutional distinction between in their language, Jew and non-Jew, which goes, it's in, it's in the Supreme Court has, there's the Israeli Supreme Court has, has, has ratified this, laws have ratified it. There's nothing, nothing original here. It's, this has been going on since 1948, essentially. So now we get to the question of the role of the United States, which of course is the key to maintaining 
Israeli power, um, there have been some moves towards criticizing America's unquestioning support for Israel from liberal Jews in Congress. Notably, Bernie Sanders said two weeks ago that he would, he hinted that he would introduce new legislation linking U.S. aid to Israel to their treatment of Palestinians. He said, quote, we've got to put some strings attached to that aid. He said, you cannot run a racist government, close quote. Kind of a lone voice in terms of conditioning aid on Israeli policy and Israeli conduct. But I wonder what you think about that. I mean, you know, good for him, but, you know, he's one senator out of out of 100, right? So the the fact that he's saying it doesn't mean anything by itself it's it's sort of it's a gesture in other words saying oh we should do this yeah well we should but that's not the point the point is we've been giving aid to this what has always been a racist country from from the beginning for 70 70 plus years at this point so yes of course we should not just restrict aid we should stop aid altogether and of course i mean this is the other key you're, you're, you're making a, a very powerful point here john the us has the holds the keys to this entire situation the israelis could not do what they do without American, without basically the ongoing open, you know, blank check from the US, meaning not just the financial aid that the Israelis get, but also the constant cover in the UN Security Council. People don't, you know, people don't really stop to think about this. The US has used its its veto power in the Security Council in the UN. I can't remember exactly how many times, but I know that most of the times the US has used its veto power, it's to protect Israel. By the way, but if you back up until into the 1970s, for example, 1970s and 1980s, the US was very active using its veto power in the Security Council to protect then apartheid South Africa. So the US clearly has a soft spot for apartheid regimes. But anyway, that's those are the contexts in which it's used its veto power. So that's much more powerful in some sense than just giving it money. You know, the Israelis don't need money per se. It's this constant political support no matter what it does, no matter how it flouts international law, no matter how it, it laughs at American you know, legislation, no matter how it abuses American citizens when they get there, because they're subject to all kinds of maltreatment, the U.S. just keeps turning over and turning over and just saying, you know, here's some more, maybe the, the U.S. will wring its hands or whatever. But until something actually happens, nothing's going to change. That's why in some really fundamental way, so much of this conflict is being waged, not just on the ground there, but also in the main, in the culture, in the in the various sort of cultural settings and academic settings and journalistic settings in the U.S. itself, which is why we see this massive turn in, in our time to the suppression of voices critical of of Israeli legal of the Israeli legal system of Israeli apartheid of the Israeli occupation and so forth, because the you know they recognize how important the U.S. public sphere is to the maintenance of support this ongoing open-ended support for the Israeli state project. Uh, last thing, the daily brief of Haaretz on Tuesday said we are, quote, on the eve of another intifada. I wonder if you think that's right. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I, can't, I couldn't tell you that. But I mean, it's, it's very clear. And again, nothing new here. It's very clear that the Israeli tactic is again and again and again and again to carry out raids and attacks and shoot people and torture people and do all kinds of things in order to get a response. And then they get the response they're looking for. And then, you know, it's like, then they're, they're sort of like, they've proved why they need to do what they do, you know, obviously in their terms. We hear about when something happens, like in Hawara, we hear about Nablus, we hear about the raid in, in Jericho, we hear about things like that because they're kind of semi-large scale, five people, six people, 10 people, 11 people killed. What we don't hear about in the day-to-day -day press 
but people can find it in the UN, in the, in the, in the weekly or biweekly briefings of, for example, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in the Occupied Territories. They have a website that has biweekly briefings. And you can see I mean, literally every two weeks, if you go through the statistics, you know, the, a recent one, which I, I actually referred to in my, in my recent Nation article, 200 raids into the West Bank in a two-week period or three-week period, shooting or, or killing or injuring, you know, several hundred Palestinians re- on a regular basis, arrests and detentions and tearing down, demolishing people's homes and ripping up their olive olive orchards and this kind of thing. This goes on day in and day out and day in and day out. Every single day, this, these forms of violence take place at a quotidian level. And they, they, you know, it's only when we see these larger scale outbursts that suddenly it grabs it in new, you know, headlines in the US or in Europe, but it's happening on a daily basis. And of course, none of that background noise that the occupation registers in, 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 in media awareness in the US and in Europe. It's when something big happens and then it's sort of, oh, here we are with a cycle of violence again. No, it's not a cycle of violence. It's a situation of apartheid and occupation. And it's been like that for more than 70 years. Sorry, Mark DC. You can read his piece, Israel is Destroying the Fantasies of Liberal Zionism, at thenation.com. Sorry, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Black History Month has just ended. Usually it's a celebration, but this February we had the biggest attack ever on black history. Now historians and other black studies scholars are fighting back. For comment and analysis, we turn to Kimberly Crenshaw. She teaches law at Columbia and UCLA. She created the concept of intersectionality, which is now banned in Florida and by the college board. And she's probably the most prominent figure associated with critical race theory. That's what the New Yorker says. It's also banned in Florida. And she co-founded the African American Policy Forum, now one of the country's leading social justice think tanks. Everybody wants to talk to her these days, the New York Times, MSNBC, the Washington Post. So it's a special pleasure to say, Kim Crenshaw, welcome back. So happy to be back, John. Thanks for having me. Well, your work, along with Michelle Alexander, Alice Walker, Robin Kelly, and Bell Hooks, has been targeted by Ron DeSantis and his allies in Florida. But that wasn't the worst part of Black History Month. The worst part came when the college board went along with everything Ron DeSantis wanted to eliminate from the new advanced placement curriculum in African American studies. In fact, intersectionality is at the top of the list of Florida's official concerns, as they call them, the ideas they want banned. Originally, the College Board denied that politics had played any part in their dropping intersectionality from the curriculum. But recently, a College Board spokesperson offered a very different explanation of what happened. He said that intersectionality had been deleted because the term had been, quote, compromised by disingenuous voices and was thus no longer, in his words, effective because it had been, quote, drained of its meaning and filled up with political rhetoric, close quote. What's your response to the statement that attacks from the right on intersectionality have left the concept drained of meaning? 
my own response and those of thousands of people who use these ideas was, well, drained of meaning by whom and and for whom. It certainly still has meaning to me. (laughs) I write about uh, intersectional issues all the time. I organize around intersectional uh, needs uh, all the time, and so do people all over the world. So effectively, what the College Board seemed to be saying is that because some people have issues with intersectionality, some people have decided that they want to attack it, um, that therefore uh, it no longer is a viable, legitimate uh, topic for classroom instruction. And that's basically just turning over to the right wing, the capacity for them to decide what kind of concepts uh, can be legitimately taught and what kind can. And I I just can't see us taking that without uh, response. The idea of intersectionality is not really anything new. It arose in the late 80s when some of our friends were debating whether race or class was more important. You suggested that gender was important too, and that efforts to rank these forces was a big mistake, and that the real task was to uncover how structures of subordination interact, for example, for black women. That was actually real intellectual progress. And it came out of activism. It came out of black feminism that has been part of our culture you know, for over a century, and it came out of legal constraints on the ability of Black women to actually be seen as legitimate subjects of the law. So I was a Black feminist thinking about and writing about how Black women in the law were often erased by the idea that either you are a racialized subject making arguments against institutions for discriminating against you on the basis of race, or you were a gendered subject making similar arguments against institutions for discrimination on on the basis of gender. But you could never be both at the same time. And my experience told me otherwise. So it was clear (laughs) that the law was a structure that was doing a certain kind of harm. It was erasing the fact of our social lives. It was removing from us uh, the kinds of remedies that should otherwise have been made available to people who experience discrimination. So my sense was that the law was telling us something about the consequences of singular categorical ideas about causality, singular ideas about discrimination and exclusion. So intersectionality was really a a remedial concept. It was grounded in a Black feminist sensibility directed to the ways that law was actually reinforcing our marginalization rather than interrupting it. It started with cases around Black women, but it didn't end there. Intersectionality is now practiced and and thought about and used all over the world, you know, from Brazil uh, to India to South Africa to France, there are all sorts of projects in which people are using this lens to better understand 
the circumstances of people who are multiply marginalized to better transform the conditions of their lives. So the that famous Florida chart says <laughs> that intersectionality, quote, ranks people based on their race, wealth, gender, and sexual orientation. I guess they got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how absolutely uninformed our critics can be and still command attention and from some uh, even some degree of respect or at least, well, they have a point. They have no point (laughs) because they don't care. And they pretty much said it many, many times. It doesn't really matter what intersectionality is or isn't. What matters is that we can use uh, this idea, we can use critical race theory, we can use 1619 to galvanize white grievance and encourage them to lose faith in some of the most important public institutions we have. And education is among the most important functions of society and one of the most important sites for democratic uh, experimentation. That's where we learn who we are. That's where the values of a democracy are inculcated. That is why education is such a threat to the aspirations of people like Ron DeSantis and others who are willing to undermine our democracy in order to win and protect power. Some of our friends are saying that this attack on critical race theory really is irrelevant because CRT is not really taught in high school, which is where the College Board AP course is taught. What do you say to those people? I say that the belief that we can handle this issue by pivoting away from what they are really trying to do uh, has been a mistake. And that mistake is what has led us to this moment when they went beyond trying to uh, demonize critical race theory to attack African-American studies as having no educational value. And uh, if folks have been following Florida, they will know that just last week, Uh, legislation was introduced to eliminate gender studies, critical race theory, intersectionality, or any sub-majors that engage in those ideas. And that will not be the last thing that they will do. They said, we're going after the entire apparatus of social justice. We're going after public education. We're going after the strongholds Uh, where people learn about equity and about inclusion and about democracy and about our history and about our aspirations to continuously make our country better. They want the country that we came from. And the only way they can get that is by erasing this knowledge, by attacking public education, and by making people think that their grievances rest with us, Mm -hmm. as opposed to grievances resting with a society that in many ways is, is going off the rails. Since the College Board bowed to the attacks on African American studies, uh, more than a thousand scholars in Black studies and affiliated fields have released a series of four demands in a letter to the College Board. You can find these at the 
uh, website of the African American Policy Forum, aapf.org. I want to just look at some of the highlights here. Of course, the first one is to restore the critical concepts and scholarship and frameworks to the AP African American Studies course. And then there's one actually I wouldn't have thought of, provide the resources to create new platforms, including online, so that students in Florida and elsewhere who have censored content in their schools can take the real uh, African American Studies course and sit for the AP exam. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so the real problem um, that the College Board is trying to sort through is the fact that there are now many states, I call them the anti-woke states or, you know, the Confederate curtain states, um, that have uh, passed legislation that they are using to preclude students from learning about things like structural racism or implicit bias or uh, being exposed to contemporary movements uh, against uh, police brutality. So in those states, Florida being one, the argument is that these courses cannot be taught because they violate state law. So there are a couple of choices. One is to uh, basically gut the course of much of its contemporary content in order to have the courses taught there. Um, I call that the Jim Crow approach. We're talking about a billion dollar uh, organizations. Surely they can find ways of working around these local bands to give students access to this material and allow them to take these uh, tests with the full exposure to the education rather than settling for a truncated and frankly racist one. Another way to resist the efforts of states below the Mason-Dixon line to limit what students can read about, think about, and learn was a project you launched called the Freedom Readers Banned Book Clubs. Tell us about that. Well, John, you know, we were uh, aware of the fact that a lot of people were not aware that the banning of books included books that they had grown up reading, included books by Pulitzer Prize winners like, you know, Toni Morrison, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, so many other classic texts were now being banned, many because of the way that they made uh, certain students feel. Um, there's a book written by Ruby Bridges, which talks about her experience being a Black girl integrating New Orleans schools. And this is a book that has turned up on the banned books list. So we thought it was important for communities to understand, number one, that this effort to ban books is banning the stories of us. It's banning classics. It's banning new ideas. It's banning our ability to actually talk about our experience. So we thought that was important. We also knew it was important for people to understand that the states that were doing a lot of this book banning, like Florida, are also states that are trying to limit the political power uh, of racially marginalized people. The two are 
pretty much hand in hand. So we went on a a 14 state tour uh, from Minnesota to uh, Jacksonville, Florida uh, on the Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers Unbanned Book Tour, (laughs) passing out 3,000 books, 19 titles, including the 1619 Project and Critical Race Theory as as well as The Hate You Give. So many of these books have been banned. And the point was for people to understand when we lose our power to influence what our education is, our voices are then going to be erased. And so that's what we've done. And we still are are keeping um, the banned books clubs uh, going. We pass out books to young people, to family events. If folks want to learn more about our banned book uh, club, they can check it out on our website at www.aapf.org. And one more uh, notable effort in response to the effort to keep Black Studies books out of the uh, classrooms, the publisher, The New Press, has published several of the banned books, including uh, your critical race theory reader. The New Press created something called the Teach Banned History Initiative in partnership with the Zinn Education Project. Teachers in states where book bans are in place, and this now includes Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, in addition to Florida, teachers in those states can request free copies of the forbidden books published by the New Press sent to their home address. The New Press has reported receiving requests from hundreds of teachers in just the first week of the initiative. They say our goal is for young people to engage in intellectual inquiry, to pursue real questions about history, and to apply historical insights to contemporary issues, close quote. You can get more info about this project at thenewpress.com. Last thoughts here. You told the New York Times recently, the slide to authoritarianism is real. This is how it happens. When we allow for people like DeSantis to allow for some ideas to be suppressed, we allow for our democracy to be undermined. No one can afford not to be involved in the resistance against the banning of books, the banning of ideas, and the banning of entire fields of study. And John, people can join this fight by signing a petition that people have been uh, sharing all over the world. Uh, They can find a link to it on our website. It basically is saying we're drawing the line Uh, in the sand here. We are not going to tolerate the marginalization, the exclusion uh, of, of Black women, of Black feminism, of intersectionality, of Black queer studies. These are tools that have come out of the history of African-Americans that are tools that we use all over the world. We're part of this tapestry and any effort to suppress ideas in one place will definitely uh, travel to other places. So if folks want to see that petition, join in, lift their voices, uh, they're welcome to do so. And that's at the African-American Policy Forum, aapf.org. Kim, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. (laughs) 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.